me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. So we continue working our way through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. I want us to begin tonight reading Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. And we're going to work tonight through verse 14. I'm sorry, through verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 15. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, our focus tonight is the Garden of Eden. We're not going to talk tonight yet about the two trees, uh, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, the command that is given to Adam about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're going to talk about those things next Sunday morning. Tonight, I want us to focus on the Garden of Eden itself. We looked this morning particularly at verse 7 and the creation of man. And we saw there that man was formed from the dust of the ground and that God breathed into him and he became a living creature. Now in verse 8, we see that God takes this man and places him in a garden. And because this is a picture of heaven, I do want us to dwell here and to consider several glorious truths about this original paradise. And so I want to say a few words about the garden, and I want to say a few words about the purpose of the garden, about the location of the garden, and about the delights of the garden. So that's our, where we're going. The purpose of the garden, the location of the garden, and the delights of the garden. So let's talk first about the purpose of the garden. And first and foremost, I think we have to say, when we look at these verses about the garden, that the Garden of Eden was primarily a place where God and man could fellowship together. More than anything else, that is what makes the Garden of Eden unique. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were in the special presence of God. He could come in the cool of the day 
and speak to them. Adam and Eve's dwelling place was, in a sense, the first sanctuary. It was a sacred place that was different from the rest of the earth. In the beginning, the whole earth was declared by God to be very good, but there was something different, something special, something unique about this particular garden which the Lord planted. In Genesis 13, verse 10, and Isaiah 51, 3, it is called the garden of Yahweh, of the Lord. Twice in the book of Ezekiel, Eden is referred to as the garden of God. Just as heaven is heaven because God is there, so the first paradise was paradise not just because of the fruits and the trees and the river. It was paradise because God dwelt there with man. Later, when the tabernacle was made, and then even after that, the temple was made as a place for the unique presence of God to dwell, God instructed that gourds and palm trees and open flowers and cherubim be be carved on the walls and the doors of those structures. Why would God have them do that? It was meant to be a reminder of the garden, of this initial dwelling place of God with man on earth. In the tabernacle and the temple, only after atonement for sin had been made through the slaughter of animals could God's people have fellowship with Him. Yet in those structures, fellowship with God was only a shadow of what it had once been in the garden. In the garden, there were no sacrifices needed to have fellowship with God. There was no atonement for sin needed. There were no veils, no curtains, no holy of holies in which God's special presence was hidden from the people. Rather, God dwelt openly with the man and the woman. As it will be in the future, so it was for Adam and Eve in the past. The dwelling place of God was with man. As Christians, as we think about the garden, we should rejoice that because of Jesus Christ, we too will have the privilege of being with God forever. When Christ died, the curtain tore in two. Even now, today, you and I have access to God through prayer. We do not have to sacrifice animals to come into His presence. We do not have to do the sacrifices to come to Him with our praises, our cries for forgiveness, our pleas for help. He now calls us to come boldly and to pray to Him because Christ has fully atoned for our sins. Yet even today, there is still a kind of veil between us and God and that we do not yet dwell in the physical presence of His Son. We do not yet dwell with God in the same sense that Adam and Eve were able to dwell with God. We do not yet live in glory with the one who bears His image, the one who sits on the throne, the one of whom we can say that when we have seen Him, we have seen the very face of God. But to dwell with God as Adam and Eve did is our destiny because of Jesus Christ if we are Christians. Did you hear what I said? Are you thankful? Is that not, is that not encouraging? Let us not be easily distressed or worried or caught up in the temporal matters of the world. This is our future. 
And we ought to look forward to it. We ought to anticipate it. We ought to live the remainder of our time here on earth in such a way that we can bring others with us to come and be a part of dwelling with God. One purpose of the Garden of Eden was to be a place where God and man fellowshiped together. There's a second purpose, and that is that the Garden was to be a special place in which Adam, with the help of Eve, could serve God. We've already seen in Genesis 1 that exercising dominion, which requires various kinds of work, is the reason we were created. And it is a way that we worship God and glorify God. Yet Adam's work in the garden seems to have a special significance. At least in the sense that the command God gives to Adam in verse 15 is the same as that that describes the duties of the Levitical priest in Leviticus and Numbers. Look at verse 15. There we read that God took the man and put him in the garden to work it, and to keep it. And what's interesting is that that word work in the Hebrew can also be translated as serve. And the two Hebrew words there, work and keep, or serve and keep, serve and guard, those appear again and again and again in the books of law in Leviticus and Numbers to describe the priests in the sanctuary and the way that they would serve God. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the point that's being made here is that though Adam's work was a physical kind of work, working with the ground, nevertheless, his work was a spiritual work. It was work done as service unto God. It was work that was worship. Similarly, on the new earth, when you and I are dwelling with God forever, we also will serve God in various ways. We will all have our place and our abilities that God will call us to use to glorify Him. But all our work will be worship. All our work will be a form of service devoted to God. And as Christians, we should not wait for that day to begin thinking this way. Christ has called us even now to work in such a way that all our work is worship. Paul told the Colossians, hopefully you've memorized this verse, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the garden was a place where man fellowshiped with God, and the garden was a place where man worshiped God through service, through work. I want to take a few moments and talk about the location of the garden. And I want to do this because that is one of the questions that often comes up when you talk about the Garden of Eden. Where was the Garden of Eden? And considering this question also gives me an opportunity to better describe uh, the garden to you, and so I do want us to talk about this. The first clue we have as to where the Garden of Eden was located is the name itself. Notice that in verse 8, you see verse 8? The Scriptures do not say that God planted a garden called Eden. The name of the garden was not Eden. Rather, it says that God planted a garden in Eden. In other words, it appears that there was a geographical territory, an area, a region called Eden, and within that area... God planted a garden. And so Eden included more than just the garden. 
And since this was recorded by Moses and given to the Israelites during the days of the Exodus, it seems very likely that Eden was a place he expected them to know. He was telling them where the garden was located, and he was using names of places he expected them to understand. Later in Genesis, we're going to be told about Cain settling in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Moses uses these place names as if his original readers were expected to have some idea where they were. Now, verse 8 also says that the garden was planted in the east, right? He planted a garden in Eden in the east. And that can mean one of two things. It could mean east of where Israel was going to dwell in Canaan, so east of Canaan. Or, and I think more likely, he's talking about in Eden. Where in Eden? In the eastern part of Eden. He planted a garden in Eden in the east. So it's as if I said to you that someone had dug a reservoir in Rocky Mount in the south. What would that mean? Well, you would know that the reservoir of which I'm speaking is in the area we call Rocky Mount, and specifically in the southern part of the area. Now, Eden is a Hebrew word, which means a place of much water, which in the desert landscape of the ancient Near East meant a place of luxury, a place of bliss. It refers to a lush place, a place of life. And the word garden was translated into Greek using the Greek word paradisus, from which we get our word paradise. Now, in verses 10 through 14... Moses goes into a great bit of detail explaining the location of the garden to the people of his day. I know there are those who want to say that the garden is just a part of some fairy tale. It's just a part of some myth. But that doesn't fit with the fact that Moses here devotes several verses explaining to his original readers geographical information about where the garden was located. Now, some of these rivers and places that he mentions in verses 10 through 14 are not known to us today, but it seems very likely that they were known to the Israelites who he first wrote the book of Genesis 2. And so it seems very likely, yes, the garden was a real place. Now, in verse 10, we learn that this place called Eden, this region called Eden, had a river which flowed through the garden. Do you see that in verse 10? A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So we have this picture of a river bringing life to the garden. And this is important because over and over and over again in the Bible, you're going to see this picture of a life-giving river, life-giving water coming from the dwelling place of God. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Psalm 46.3 John says in Revelation 22.1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What God is illustrating here so beautifully is that He is the giver of life. That's why the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb in Revelation 22. And I would ask you, as we think about this life that comes from God, do you have it? Have you received from God not only abundant life, but spiritual life? Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. 
that water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The prophets in the Old Testament used this picture of God's river to describe a day when he would again bring new life to the fallen world. I want you to turn with me real quickly to Ezekiel 47. I know you're very familiar with Ezekiel. It's one of those books we read a lot, isn't it? Just kidding. Ezekiel 47. I'm going to read several verses here, but I'll read them rather quickly. But I want you just to get the picture of what's happening in Ezekiel 47 with the river of God, the river running from this place where God dwells. Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. And going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits cubits, and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Think about that. The river flows into the sea and the sea water becomes fresh. Verse 9, And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Do you see this picture of a river flowing from the temple of God? And wherever it goes, it brings life? Well, we're taught by John in the New Testament that this is actually a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. That if you have the Holy Spirit within you, then you have that new life which comes and originates from God and comes into you and brings life to your soul. And if you have it now, you are a part of the new creation, the new heavens and earth that will one day be made. And one day that same spirit is going to come forth from God as we saw in the original story of creation. Genesis 1 verse 2, the Holy Spirit is going to come and make the whole earth new. And so this picture of water coming forth from God, the Spirit of God bringing life in His dwelling place is an important image and one that we see again and again in Scripture. Well, Moses goes on to tell us that this river, which ran through the garden, became the headwaters for four different rivers. So it goes through the garden, and then after it brings water to the garden, it becomes the headwaters, it branches out into four different rivers. The picture is of a river streaming from the garden and branching out to bring life to all the ancient world, the ancient Near East. 
Now, the first river he mentions is Pishon. Do you see that in verse 11? All of these names, I'm just guessing how to pronounce them. So don't think that the way I pronounce them is necessarily right. I'm just pronouncing them the way I think to pronounce them. So the first river he mentions is Pishon. He says this river flowed around a land called Havilah, which was known for its gold, its delium, and onyx stone. Uh, Now, by the way, that word onyx stone is very questionable. We're not actually very sure what kind of stone he's saying there. So we're just guessing and saying maybe it's onyx stone. Havilah shows up again, that city, that name, shows up again in Genesis 10. But in Genesis 10, Havilah is not a city. He's a man. He's the son of Cush. And so we think that this city that Moses is referring to is probably a city named after this man. In Genesis 25, we're told that some of the descendants of Ishmael went and lived in the city of Havilah. Now, we aren't positive about where it was located, But because of evidence in Genesis 25, evidence in 1 Samuel 15, we think that this was probably a city near Egypt. Now, the second river that's mentioned is Gihon, which flowed around Cush. And while we don't know of any river named Gihon today, we do know that Cush was an ancient city in present-day western Iran. And so we think that Gihon was probably the name of one of the rivers that flowed near there. Uh, Different scholars debate which one they think was Gihon, but we do think it was one of those near there. But the last two rivers that are mentioned are very well known, aren't they? Because the Tigris and the Euphrates still go by that name today. Um, In fact, even modern anthropologists who deny the Bible outright recognize that the earliest traces of human civilization came from the valleys around the Euphrates River and the Tigris River and what you probably learned about in school as ancient Mesopotamia. Right. Well, this is that same general area. Now, someone might say that if we wanted to find the Garden of Eden, shouldn't we just go back and look at where these rivers all start out since that was the headwaters? And if we do that, um, we would find ourselves in the mountains of modern Turkey. Uh, However, we do need to remember that rivers change course over centuries. And so uh, I've, I've been reading recently just happened to be reading about the Euphrates River, and we know that it has changed its course, its bed, uh, many different times over the centuries. Um, Now, I don't know if you picture a mountainous terrain when you think of the Garden of Eden, Um, but there are many scholars that say that we should picture a mountainous terrain, uh, partly because it does describe these rivers leaving the garden and, and branching out into the rest of the ancient world and into the sea. And we do know that most rivers do begin in mountainous areas and go towards the sea. Also, there's a very interesting and mysterious chapter in Ezekiel that you can go home and read, Ezekiel 28, uh, about the king of Tyre, and some say Satan, being cast out of the Garden of Eden. And there uh, we're told uh, that he was cast out of Eden, the Garden of God, and then the next verse says, the Holy Mountain of God. And so some people are saying that that verse proves that the Garden of God was on a holy mountain. Other people just say that Ezekiel is just mixing metaphors to make his point, so I don't know. Now, having said all of that, I think we need to understand that ultimately, knowing the location of the original Garden of Eden is not very important. It's just not. The garden was significant in the beginning because God made it significant. He planted it. He made it a place of beauty and blessing. It was He who placed the tree of life in the midst of it. 
And most of all, it was his presence there in a unique way as he would come and visit with Adam and Eve that made the garden special. But after Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out and the cherubim and the flaming sword are left guarding the entrance, we cease to hear any more about the physical locality of the Garden of Eden holding that same significance. We never read of someone trying to get past that flaming sword or someone trying to sneak past the cherubim to get into the garden at night. No, after Genesis 3, Eden more or less falls off the map and ceases to be an important place in the Bible. Now remember, I told you that in the Greek, the word for garden was paradisos, right? Paradise. In Luke 23, 43... Jesus is being crucified. And he says to one of the robbers, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in where? Paradise. Did he mean, as soon as we die, robber, mean you are going to be in a garden in the mountains of modern day Turkey? Or wherever we think it was? No, that's not what he meant. He meant, we're going to be with my Father. Paradise is no longer some physical locality on the earth. It is where God is in His presence. It is His special dwelling place. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, describes a man, and it was pretty much Paul himself that he was describing, but he says he's describing a man who was allowed to see heaven without dying. He says, quote, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And so in that passage, we learn that heaven is now paradise. Heaven is now the place where God dwells, especially now with the souls of those who belong to him. But it will not always be this way. Because the end of the story, Revelation 21, 22, is all about how God is again going to bring paradise back to earth, to a new earth. And he will again dwell with us in a physical world. Or at least he will if we believe that promise and allow it to shape our lives. Jesus said in Revelation 2, verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So where is the Garden of Eden? It is where God is. It is where God dwells with man. Today, it is a spiritual place. It is a place where the souls of those who die in Christ go to be with God. But it will again be a physical place. The new earth is where we will dwell with God in our resurrected bodies and enjoy His presence forever. You with me? This is good stuff we're talking about. We're talking about paradise. Let me talk about the garden's delights. And this is meant to whet your appetite for your heavenly home. Verse 9 says that out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We see in that verse that the garden was a beautiful place. It was a place pleasant to the sight. 
In John Calvin's commentary on Genesis, published in 1563, he said this, No corner of the earth was then barren, nor was there even any which was not exceedingly rich and fertile. But that benediction of God, which was elsewhere comparatively moderate, had in this place poured itself wonderfully forth. In other words, it's as if God had blessed the whole earth, made the whole earth a beautiful place, but in this place, the Garden of Eden, it's as if He took the the vessel of blessing and just dumped it over and just poured it out and lavished the garden with beauty. For not only was there an abundant supply of food, but with it was added sweetness for the gratification of the palate and beauty to feast the eyes. Calvin goes on to point out how in a place as beautiful and glorious, as wonderful as this, how inexplicable it is that man would give it all up by sinning against God. The garden itself, the garden itself was a delight. Its environment was a delight. We've already seen how in the beginning work was also a delight to man. It was a part of the goodness of paradise. It was service unto God, a way in which Adam imitated his creator. Adam exercised dominion over that part of creation entrusted to him using his own God-given attributes and abilities to bring forth greater order and beauty and blessing from the earth. And all the while, as Adam was fulfilling that calling, his God was above him, exercising dominion over him. God using his attributes and abilities to bless Adam and to bring forth blessing both through Adam and for Adam. And so work was a delight in the garden. Not only was the garden itself a delight, but the work of the garden, the service to God in the garden was a delight both to God and to Adam. Next Sunday evening, we will look at the gift of the woman to man. We will see how Adam rejoiced in the gift of his bride, how she was a helper suitable for him, and how their relationship in the garden was one of delights. Their relationship was one of the delights of the garden. Now in heaven, there will be no more giving in marriage, for there will be no more need for procreation. But we will have in heaven wonderful relationships and joyful fellowship with our fellow citizens of the kingdom. For just as there is fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, so here on earth and in heaven there is fellowship between those who make up the body of Christ. And so our relationships with one another will be one of the delights of heaven. But of course, the greatest delight of the garden was God Himself. David wrote in Psalm 1611, In your presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Um, In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Can you get more than full? (laughs) Full means as much as I am capable of experiencing joy, I am full. And pleasures forevermore. Can you have pleasures more than forevermore? No. This is extravagant language. This is language meant to say that the joy of being in God's presence is an amazing joy, a boundless joy. And I hope that you already know some of that joy in your life. I hope that you already are experiencing what it is to be in God's presence as you pray to Him, 
as you commune with Him in private, and as you gather with believers in this place to worship Him, you should be experiencing some of the joy of being in God's presence even now. And yet how much more will the delight be when we are with Him in heaven? Some people work really hard to have their best life now. But the Bible tells us to live in such a way that our best life is yet to come. David prayed in Psalm 17 about, quote, men of the world whose portion is in this life. You will their womb, I'm sorry, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their inheritance to their infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David is saying there that there is no delight that compares with beholding the face of God. Oh, how Moses longed to see God's face. There can be nothing better than being in the presence of God. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Friends, if we are Christians, the life that is coming to us is a life of endless joy. God will have to expand your soul in order for you to take it all in. His favor, His love, His goodness, His boundless generosity, all directed towards you as His child. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. It's all because He bore the hell you deserved so that you could live in the heaven that only He deserved. Every gift you receive from God, both in the past and in the present and in that glorious future, was purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. How easy it would have been for Jesus to say no to the crown of thorns. How easy it would have been for him to say no to the nails. How easy it would have been in those moments of extreme bodily pain and internal agony for him to cry out to his father, take me away from this. Send those angels and get me out of this situation. I don't want to bear this any longer. But Christ didn't do that. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What an amazing passage. Jesus says he knows. He knows that all he has to do is call out to the Father and he would be saved from suffering. But instead, he prays, Father, glorify your name. Jesus knew that this was why he had come, to show the glory of God's wisdom, the glory of God's righteousness, the glory of God's love and mercy. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so friends, as we talk about heaven, are you thankful? Does your heart not love your Savior who purchased this for you? Do you not want to worship Him?
Do you not have more reason than any person on earth to sing His praises and to live this week in such a way that all you do is serve Him? And beloved, if God has so loved us, shouldn't we also love one another? 1 John 4.11 Well, there's more to be said. Because in the paradise that is coming to us, we will have some delights that Adam and Eve never knew in the original garden. And one of those delights is that we will have the joy of knowing that we shall never sin again and there will be no possibility of us losing our fellowship with God. As we'll see next week, Adam and Eve did not have this. They were not confirmed in their holiness but had the ability to sin and to lose all the blessings God had poured out on them. Friends, can you imagine Adam and Eve as they walked away from the garden cast out by God turning back and looking at all that they had that was now lost. That will never happen to us in heaven. The Spirit of God poured into our hearts is making us holy so that in heaven our wills and our hearts will be 100% satisfied in God. There will be no temptation in heaven There will be no serpent to lead us astray, but even if there were, because of the sanctification of God, there will be nothing capable of tearing us away from our love to God and to our our Savior and our Comforter. God will truly be our all in all. And so we will have that delight of eternal security that Adam and Eve did not have. And then second, a delight they did not know in the garden is this. In the garden, they were able to worship God as their creator. But they did not know God in the beginning as a savior. The name Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, was unknown to them. And even if they had heard it, it would not have meant to them in that first paradise what it means to them now. On the new earth, Adam and Eve will join with us in singing praises not only to the one who created us as they did in the garden, but now also to the God who died for us. You see, the fall was a dreadful thing, but God had his good purposes in it all. Without the fall, we would have worshipped God for his power. We would have worshipped God for his wisdom. We would have worshipped God for his creativity, but we would have never known his mercy. Without the fall, we would have never known His humility in taking on human flesh and dying on a cross. Without the fall, we would have never seen the full extent of His wisdom, nor the full extent of His love. Had we never sinned, we would have never known, I'm sorry, if we had never sinned, we would have known enough about God to keep us singing His praises forever. But because of sin and because of Jesus Christ, we now have infinitely more reasons to keep on singing His praises. We see more of God and have more reason to worship Him in the second paradise than we ever did in the first. The paradise that we are going to will be twice the paradise that Adam and Eve knew. They will be able to give testimony to us of how much better the second is than the first. 
for they will join with us in praising God, not only as our all-powerful creator, but as our loving Savior. Now, if this is where we're going as Christians, if this heaven awaits us, how now shall we live? How should this affect the way you live tomorrow? I'm done preaching. I'll just say you should have joy. And you should have courage because, hey, what, I mean, even death, what's death going to do? Get you there quicker. So you have reason to be courage, courageous. You should have humility. You should live with gratitude. And you should live your life in worship and, and in service to God. Amen? Are there any questions about things that were preached this morning or tonight? And these were different, unique subjects. We talked about the human soul, the inner person this morning, as well as the body made of dust. Tonight we've talked about the Garden of Eden and how it points us to the paradise that is to come. Are there any questions that you have from what we've talked about this morning or this evening?